Hello, Aaron. Hi, Tom. Uh, so, how are you? Oh, complex. <laughs> very good, very good. So, do you want to kick us off with a topic or uh, a discussion point? Well, I have a couple. I'd like to make a couple of points first. Okay. Um, one of the things I realized is uh, is that this really is your show, and I like it that way. Uh, because it relieves me of any responsibility to be interesting. <laughs> Very good. I Very see good. it as, I mean, I'm here because I enjoy talking with you. And and I think that the stuff might be interesting for other people to listen to. And, uh, and even if I wasn't doing them, it's still fun. So that's why I'm here. That's one thing. Uh, another thing that was on my mind is uh, I had told you I was getting, you know, a 1,000 downloads a week, you know. And I started thinking about those figures and looking at the statistics. And I realized that when I'm getting really big numbers like that is when several new people join in. And they download the entire 400 body corpus and i think probably uh what we really have is like 40 or 50 people who are fairly regular uh participants in this thing so that would explain why you're not getting any emails <laughs> it's it's a very small number yes this is this is why i've always been suspicious of download statistics anyway and i think um well, firstly, I'd like to, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about the format of the show recently as well, the show, um, but I've been thinking about the format of what we did recently, particularly because TalkShoe didn't publish last week's recording. I was able to get it through your feed, but it wasn't actually published through TalkShoe. Uh, wait a minute, what do you mean it wasn't published through TalkShoe? I, I have, see it there. Uh, yeah, you see it, but um, I have the. I have my iTunes account linked up to the TalkShoe feed, and it's been spitting out... Not even necessarily random shows, but some very strange shows. If you're talking about iTunes, iTunes is screwed up all the time. I mean, Mm. every time I go to iTunes, it seems to be formatted differently than the last time. Certainly, certainly. So, So, yeah, you saying if you go to the TalkShoe site? No, no, if I go to the TalkShoe site, I get the right shows. Yeah, but if I download there, from right. the TalkShoe feed on iTunes, which is yeah. what I'm assuming yeah. is there. Yeah, you need to. I've, call, I've emailed them, and they responded, uh, and they said they were very concerned about these issues. And yeah. it seemed to be a little better, so I would suggest you write to the iTunes people. And Well, my suspicion is it's TalkShoe, because I think the... The fact that they're presenting two different kinds of feeds. I mean, the iTunes guys aren't doing it. Anyway, what I've, what I've done, which is what I was thinking of doing anyway, is um, I had floated it under one name, and I, I checked out the one name, and there was a rock climbing podcast under that name. So I'm getting a feed together, I'm getting a page together, but I, I should have this all sorted within the next week. Uh, where for our discussions in particular, there'll be a new podcast feed. It will be unhindered by uh, whatever talk show is doing currently, and that way we can uh, serve a listening audience. And we're going to have a name? Yes. (laughs) And what's the name going to be? Well, I don't want to float the name until I've actually registered it because of the way these things go with iTunes. I got it. It's kind of similar to the end of text. Floated. Could, I want to just well because there's still you, you, I want to finalize. Okay, I got it. Go for it. it. Yeah, but the interesting yeah. thing is that I've mentioned this format to a number of people, and my hope is to actually get some really quite eclectic, semi to actually quite well known people and an interesting mix of folk in the conversations within probably the next two or three months. 
So um, I've certainly been mentioning this to people periodically, but some of the people that have expressed a strong interest in participating are people that have existing and quite eclectic and substantial fan have base. They heard, have they heard any of the stuff that you and I <laughs> have done? Not yet. This is basically well, that's why they wait till they hear it. <laughs> yes. I think that, that, well, they're going on their knowledge of you. My anticipation, my anticipation is that if I give, if I, if I say to them what I will offer them is basically the same thing that I've offered you initially, get them into the discussion with the ability to talk in this long format, because what you find is people who are known for particular things are also intellectually capable of talking on a wide variety of topics. Yes. So what interests me about this format is we kind of mutually in some regard take each other out of our normal uh, our uh, normal narrative engine space to use a, a evolving cliche and move into something where uh, it's considerably more eclectic well, I have an opinion on just about everything <laughs> well I think you're not alone in that you see yeah, my yeah. feeling is that of the people I know, many of them, I don't necessarily want to use the term pigeonhole, but many of them talk on a very specific topic most of the time and would equally like to be heard on other things as yeah, well. Yeah. So I think there's probably a great degree of power in this format. So, you know, when you said long format, that, that mm -hmm. really struck me. I mean, that's an obvious term, and I guess I've heard it before, mm -hmm. but that actually is a rather rare thing these days, isn't it? it an it uninterrupted is. conversation for an hour or two or three, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yes, well, maybe an hour or two. Well, but could, well, the thing is, it can go as long until until we get tired of it. Certainly. <laughs> you know. And I think there's a certain intensity and a certain method which probably works in the hour to probably two-hour format. But my hope is, because we, we've developed such a good back catalogue already, that um, feeding this to a few of the right people, and a few people have, have commented that irrespective of the format, they're still interested in, in participating. I think there's just a general need. What do uh, they know when you say they're, what do they think they're participating in? I mean, th if they haven't heard anything, they're basically going on what you've told them. And their, well, and their belief on, in you or something. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to get that far along the the view. But I think the term long format and also the ability to talk on a variety of topics, mm. I think, ah, uh, okay. makes makes people very interested. Ah, and also, yeah. the certainly the formats that are available currently for people to do this aren't as free as what we're offering. God, yeah. you're right. You're right. That's just that's a brilliant insight. So anyway, this yeah, is coming yeah, in. Yeah, that's the, great. You know, I mean, even that Ray Kurzweil three-hour thing, as great yeah, as it is, yeah. uh, you know what it's going to be when you go into it. Yeah, I think the <laughs> the anti-TED kind of, but it's not even TED. It's it's yeah. it's something which is very different. But I think it's a format that I'd actually, prior to talking to you, to you been thinking about how to put it together. And I think you've actually facilitated, so if, if we're... If we're if we're piling on the praise on each other, you've actually facilitated this very well in my own thinking as well. Well, Herod. I've been doing this for four years. Certainly. Yeah, and I go back and I listen to two thousand and six podcasts that are an hour and a half long with one guy. Hmm. Mm. But I think I'm not. Sh well, I get the sense from the people I've corresponded with that they're familiar with what I've done with Biota, for example, and the format of the interviews and discussions there, yeah. and similarly other things that I've done. So I get the sense that people understand my background with regards to how to approach this. And in particular, I mean, the, the model rail show that I do 
is very succinct within that format. Yeah. I keep things on topic and I keep make sure that it maintains a certain degree of interest. And I think that format is... Uh, I'd be crucial so, for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A rambling <laughs> show on that wouldn't work for anybody. Well, people people want that, but others don't. And I think the, the <laughs> no, they can format, go there and get their fix a, and get out. Yeah. So, yeah, so... I think yeah. um, so. People seem to be very spiked on this format. I think when they actually start hearing your and my interaction and get a sense that really we and what I've been doing as well, I've been listening to the back catalogue. This is the reason it's taking so long to pull the site together. Is I'm actually writing detailed show notes for the back catalogue as well because I think that's the thing that's been missing in my podcast to date is they have very brief show notes, but they don't actually go into. Well, you know, that's something I've been concerned with in my own. I have 420-something recordings <laughs> now, and they say, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But the, the idea of going back and listening to all that stuff and write, I mean, you're actually doing this? You're listening to, to yes. stuff and then taking I got paper notes, notes on it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I think, that will, I think that will tell. I'm interested in seeing if this, is an, if this works both in terms of captivating guests yeah and also whether we well, can suppose generate it does there. capture suppose it gets really popular what what are your intentions uh, nothing then ah well let's talk about this a little bit because i have been i am probably the last and most zealous advocate of free podcasting uh in terms of both the format and also the fact that what you need to do is grow a discussion and think of the people that listen as you do. I mean, this is, I think, why we're simpatico with this, uh, in terms of growing a large friendship group rather than actually creating something which is a vehicle for... Uh, the, the converse example of this is people that get into podcasting and start charging uh, for additional content oh, yeah, and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, so my view, exactly. Yeah. So my view well, this is... This is revolution, not business. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is it stifles, it stifles the growth. And I've followed podcasts that have done this and it's killed the podcasts. Yeah. So my view is if we can generate an intellectual movement or at least a listening audience behind this, who are relatively communicative in terms of potential different directions of the let's see how it evolves well, it could be it's i mean still, it could be really interesting to, i mean cuz if it really did get popular i mean yeah. obviously the kind of people that would find this interesting are just <laughs> your kind of people and my kind of people exactly yeah we're, we're <laughs> approaching to the fringes but uh, yeah. no i think there's some potential here Heron, and i because we've kind of kept the, the lid on it to date in terms of broader Feedback. I it's think, sort of, uh, sort of like a, uh, I'm trying to think, a support group for all the people who share our particular form of mental illness. I wouldn't necessarily go <laughs> that far, but I just think there are certain failings that are going on with regards to communication currently, and particularly global communication. And I think we can, we have certain answers to this. You know, I, I have to add another thing. There are a couple of things I wanted to talk about. You know, in the beginning, and of course, we always are off on everything. Uh, but I was just stunned by the beauty of the world we live in. Uh, I've been listening to, well, two things. You're familiar with the teaching company? Mm. Well, then look it up, the teaching company. Uh, they offer really great lectures by uh, some of the best teachers in the world. And I've been uh, listening to a 24-lecture, 24, 30-minute 24, lecture series called Building Great Sentences, Exploring mm. the Writer's Craft. And in there, uh, I just, and the reason I, I was 
I wanted to wait 15 more minutes as I was finishing the final lecture of that series. Huh. And in there, he mentioned George Orwell's um, essay called Politics and the English Language, which I'd heard of before but never read. And within 10 seconds, I found a PDF of it, a nine-page document that I now have. Yeah. You know, and I think, God, what kind of world is it where you can hear something and then in 30 seconds, there it is right in front of you? You know, God, stunning. Okay, anyway, <laughs> back, back to our regularly. I, I thought you show. were going to give some profound example of a natural world, but it was in fact <laughs> the, the very much Matrix rather than Squish. So, Aaron, you've uh, yeah, you've continued a, a, a perception which is uh, yeah manifesting itself even further. So there were there were a few topics that I wanted to discuss this evening, but um, do you do you have another one you want to throw out? Uh, let me think for a minute. Uh, now, nah, I guess not. If it doesn't come by then, it, there's nothing burning. Okay. okay. I, I had a series of topics. The, the one I wanted to start with was this idea of time and productivity, which is something that I, I find myself uh, constantly, I wouldn't necessarily use the term burdened with, but it does strike me on occasion that um, so much of my life is optimized with regards to production. And I miss out on aspects of living it in some way in terms of the uh, just the kind of production. But I also find this this notion of pacing um, in terms of just working out what, what I can do in a specific time and then setting the goal to actually get it done. I find this with writing, producing podcasts, various software uh, pursuits and uh, just in general life, it's almost a competitive uh, thing, which I find internally and i reflect on um both things that you've said and also people that i've met previously that have um not necessarily optimized down but basically haven't emphasized aspects of things like you know that the the work component in terms of the actual earning a living is a very certain amount of time and then the remainder of the time is is optimized for other things so in terms of your own time do you get a sense of optimization and of leisure of Pacing. I mean, is this part of your life, Aaron? Oh, I used to teach time management. Mm -hmm. I, I developed my own system and did seminars in the, I guess, 80s. Mm. Uh, I mean, not many and not very successful, but I mean, but what not was successful your financially. Insight? What was your particular insight? Uh, well, it's basically uh, about goals. Mm. That the, the, It all starts from what it is you think you're trying to do. That you can't. There's no point in managing time unless you know what your goals are, and that every, you know. And then deciding to do things that uh, move you towards your goals, at least sometimes, on your schedule, but to do it consciously. Mm. But the notion of goals tends to mean that they're well formed, both intellectually and also in terms of some. Well, kind however, of they could be. It doesn't need to be limited to that. If if they are well formed, if you have goals that are set like that, then yes. Mm. Uh, but you can also have goals that are quite fuzzy uh, mm. and still deal with them too. But that's different. If they're quite fuzzy, then it's it's a little bit different kind of a goal. Certainly, most of my goals are whimsical, which I think is probably indicative of the kind of life that I've led. What? What are your goals? What do you mean? A whimsical? Well. For example, I mean, putting people in contact with other people and seeing what develops from that, seeing uh, what kind of projects come out of that. Uh, the stuff that I do with Noble Ape, a lot of the things 
are, you know, the, there are half a dozen things set out in the future, and some of those bear fruit, which will then get more of my time, but I like to maintain all of them uh, in parallel. Some of them mm, die. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, my sense is that if I have, I guess in my youth I had more structured goals in terms of this is where I would see myself in the future and I would work towards those things, but it doesn't factor into time management so much. I always have a, a constant kind of running to-do list in terms of the things that are uh, have the highest priority. Currently, I have a book chapter, for example, um, that is getting that kind of priority. But in addition to that, I have things like setting up a, a podcast feed. Um, there's a lot of maintenance going on with Noglape currently, and there's a lot of other things that I'm kind of tracking in a in a well, probably half an hour. Can a I week ask you a question? How many hours a week do you spend working on supporting yourself? You know, just dealing with making uh, money. Fifty, about fifty hours, fifty to fifty-five hours a week. Okay, so that doesn't count any of this other stuff you're doing. Exactly. How, how much do you sleep? Uh, I sleep slightly more than I used to, but I still don't sleep as much as I should. Well, I am actually what? getting better now in terms of I sleep for probably about five hours a night. Okay, and you, so you don't have much time to actually like stare at the wall. That's exactly the point that I'm making. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm considered by people that know me to be almost, and this has recurred throughout my life, but in terms of. There's a, a psychological uh, phenomena with people that don't sleep in particular. I actually sleep now a lot more than I used to. Um, but uh, it's to do with just this constant drive. And I guess it's a, it's a quality which is really a double-edged sword because as you describe, I do catch myself thinking and staring at the wall occasionally, but it's always in kind of transitory periods, maybe you know, chowering in the morning or these yeah. kind of things. You and don't I do, set aside time for staring exactly. at the wall. And I think this is the thing, particularly with your discussions associated with meditation. I certainly, well, we've talked a little bit about my dreaming, and certainly I use my dreaming in almost a meditative sense. It strikes me as the idea of using your dreaming. I mean... <laughs> Well, this is the point. I mean, yeah, I, that's, your, that's your personality, of course. My concern is that this, I, because this it strikes people, it? yeah, this this strikes people as being slightly abnormal when it's described in these kind of settings. Yeah. But it's something which is very much it part is. of who I am. But, but yeah, it's, yeah that, that's the glory of it. I mean, my well, I think my OCD is, of, is is something I I love dearly. Yeah, but I think of this in terms of the earning the living part, because that is the component which is. Not necessarily completely removed, but certainly vastly removed from the stuff that I do when I'm not earning a living. And if there's some way in the future of resolving these two things, um, then I think I will feel considerably more, I don't know necessarily whether the whole is the right. Yeah. Well, one way would be to have enough money so that you didn't have to spend any more time trying to get money. Mm. Yeah, the problem with that is that I've seen... I've seen that manifest when I lived in the Bay Area, not that I was in that circumstance, but I've seen that with others. And I think there's an element of... Well, there's a, once, once, your, once your dreams become your job as well, then you are in a semi-precarious... No, I'm not saying it's your job. I'm and, saying uh, you're in a position to exactly. not have to think about money. Exactly. But how do you get to that position? Well, that's the separate issue. I'm just yeah. saying if you can get to that point... Yeah. Then well, that's that's really. I mean, most people get stuck in the process of getting to that point. Certainly. And I, but I'm saying if because I know people 
if I had their money, <laughs> you know, I don't, I can't understand why they still work. They tell me they love it, but I don't believe mm. it. Mm. You know, mm. I think they're stuck. Mm. You know, and they've got all the money they'd need to do any damn thing they'd ever want to do for the rest of their life. Yes. But that's the capitalism game. I mean, that's the whole process of that's the and the irony is that you, by even saying that you're playing into the capitalism game and the, the whole notion that there is a certain amount of money where you could do what you love indicates that the money is what's controlling you well, doing what is. you love as opposed to you independently. Well, for instance, if I had the money to travel, to get on a plane and rent a hotel room somewhere, I could go around to Certainly. conferences all over the planet and meet really interesting people who would probably like what I'm talking about. But if you work five days a week, you might be closer to doing that, and that's something that you don't particularly... Yeah, but I'm not interested in spending my... That's the thing is, I'm not stuck in... That's right. I can live without being able to travel. So I've got that. the Internet. I've mm. met you. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know? No, I, I agree, and certainly my experiences in the Bay Area fed back to me that traveling, particularly the kind of traveling that I was doing there is very, very overrated, and I can do everything I need to do. Yeah, through, that's the beauty it. of the Internet, you're right. Yeah, is that, yeah here we are. <laughs> yeah. Although well, there is some benefit with actually meeting people and hanging out. No, with I them. think going to conferences makes a lot of sense. Where people I always feel dirty when I go to conferences. Really? My experience at conferences is just, particularly, I guess, the first real conference I went to was a computer graphics conference in the late 90s called SIGGRAPH, SIGGRAPH 99 yeah. in L.A., yeah. and... Um, I just felt dirty. Firstly, there were, you were there a whole selling other... stuff. Or no, what? no, 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 no. I was there. Firstly, I submitted maybe three papers. At this time, I had a um, a very fast non-polygonal graphics technology, which I developed early on as part of Noble Ape, and I went there with the view that this was something that was very new, and it was very new, and it had gotten me into Apple and a few other graphics uh, manufacturers. Uh, so I already knew that it had value, and the SIGGRAPH conference, they wouldn't even read my papers. They were sent back, and they weren't even, like, the staples that hadn't even been folded. <laughs> and they said, you know, we'll give you written notes about why we've rejected your papers, and they didn't include anything. In fact, I wrote back to them instantly, having received this back in yeah. Australia, saying, this is a con. Why aren't you even reading the papers? Where's the notes associated with this? And they said, we look forward to seeing you, you know, when you come to the conference. Oh, well, so anyway, make me feel pretty dirty, too. I don't but, no, I, but I went to the conference, and Star Wars, this is the whole uh, notion of, you know, if only they'd gotten on a plane. I went to the conference, and this, the, the next generation of Star Wars movies, the first one had just come out. And it was all LucasArts people giving papers about... Uh, how they choreographed the fight sequences and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, this is a fundamentally corrupt enterprise. Anyway, I wandered around the uh, various halls uh, and saw the presenters and, uh, you know, the, the stuff that they were trying to hawk and all this kind of thing. And it just followed a really curious narrative of excess that was nothing to do with what I'd done back in Australia. Yeah. The second conference I went to was... Uh, uh, Apple-related one. It was Macworld, actually, I think. And I felt similarly dirty there and uh, missed by a very narrow margin actually meeting see, but one yeah, of... Yeah, but see, these aren't really... Con those aren't conferences. Those are sales shows. I'm talking well, about scientific conferences in linguistics or 
biology or something where the leading edge people in, yeah, in I, psychological research are meeting. Yeah. That's a whole different kind of thing than what you're talking about. Well, what I'm describing here might look like because they have the sales component to them, but certainly SIGGRAPH is considered an academic conference. And at really? the time, yes. Hmm. At the time, uh, there were certainly independent developers that would come to Macworld and talk as well. Yeah. Um, so the sales part is it's true. Having said that, my experience, you know, tagging along with my father as, as a young boy going to academic conferences, there was just an element of kind of, uh, you know, bourgeois culture that went along with that and yeah, i feel yeah. that i feel similarly dirty yeah I, fact, yeah that i know that what you're talking about there so yeah. the the next that's what bothers me about ted to a certain yeah extent. no i have no time for ted as yeah. we've discussed well, previously. The, the, the speakers are great i mean but the I, I disagree with you i think most of the speakers at ted actually indicate that it's complete intellectual incest really? i've seen one ted talk about the aquatic ape all the other ted talks i've seen are really almost to the point... If you understand a little bit about what the TED speakers are talking about, you realise that what is actually going on at TED is intellectual incest, not intellectual discourse. It's not actually moving the the, the intellectual uh, aspects ah, okay. of whatever discipline is being well, taught. Well, I guess I it's haven't just, heard... You've probably... I bet you you've heard more of them than I have then. Well, I've heard maybe two dozen of them, but I got frustrated. The... the um, Aquatic Ape is the only TED Talk, and I've seen... I typically stop watching them after about the first two or three minutes just out of disgust. Yeah, well, I and know I what think... you're talking about. I, I have lost interest mostly mm. in it, but uh, there are individual things there that have been really wonderful, I think. <laughs> you know, um, can you name but, a couple? Uh, I can. The one on the crow vending machine. Mm-hmm. Did you see that one? No, I haven't seen that oh, one. Okay. It's, uh, th that's the, the one that sticks out in my mind mostly. But that's simply because I'm a, a crow freak, you know. Right. Um, yeah, uh, there was a lady who had a stroke and uh, wrote about it, and I thought that was really interesting. Yes. And those two come to mind. I guess most of the TED Talks I'm pointed towards are people that I've either had dealings or non-dealings with through various things that I've done in the past. Uh -huh. And in that regard, I'm usually very familiar with their uh, prior work. And, and, typically who, and just... with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. And, yeah, very, very so much you're so. bringing a lot of personal knowledge to this that I certainly don't have. Mm, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. I guess my main frustration with Ted is it's not actually bringing... I mean, what I would like to do, which is part of this format is bring new and interesting thinkers or at least people that have done a little bit in their particular uh, uh, field into the fold and talk yeah. about other things. Yeah. Because I think that is considerably more interesting and considerably more sticky. I agree with you completely, but Ted is going for a different... They're going for the... Un, you know, you and I are going to have a completely different audience. Mm. You know, our audience, they need some audience. I mean, even their audience is a small percentage probably. Well, I don't know, maybe maybe 20 or 30%. Mm. somewhere like that maybe maybe less i don't know what but i mean most people don't know about ted mm. i uh, think so i think ted is a great awakening force for large numbers of people but you and i are talking about something entirely different after they go to ted then they can come here 
<laughs> well, after they go to Ted, they're, what, $1,000 poorer? How much is Ted? Well, no, no I'm, they can go to the website. No, screw going to Ted. That's well, that's ridiculous. exactly my point. Yeah. No, this is my point. That what you have is in creating the conference in the format that they've created it, the people well, that's how that... they fund it. So they got a few, a few rich, just the same way that the Christian ministers do. They got a few rich assholes who pay for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yes, maybe that's the, the start of my problems with Ted as a format. <laughs> but anyway, I guess, I guess, yeah. What better it, thing to do with a bunch of rich assholes than to take their money and turn it into good videos that you can put on the web for anybody to watch? Well, maybe. I don't know, maybe give their money to the poor. Who knows? Oh, I mean, just go out and buy another bottle of Manischewitz. Exactly. This is exactly my no point. No, this is, look, look, I'm, look, don't get me wrong. I'm completely in favor of wealthy people sponsoring artists and doing things like that. Don't yes. get me wrong with that for that. My concern here is that they're paying their buddies intellectually to come and actually give talks rather than paying people that would be, firstly, Cutting edge, but we bleeding don't live edge. in that world yet. We still live in a capitalism-dominated world. And I don't think it's necessarily an anti-capitalism narrative. Really? I just think it's an intellectual elite, which is very much part of not rocking the boat. Yeah, and well, there's that rock. too. You're right. I agree with that. That's so, but still, that intellectual elite, we'd be a lot better off if the the unwashed masses had a little bit of that intellectual elitism in them. Mm, no, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one, okay. Karen, because right. I, I fundamentally think that w what you – there are ways of getting it without actually getting it through the the existing intellectual elite. And I think the – you're right. Well, maybe, maybe we'll some... have that way. Maybe we will figure it out. Maybe you will figure that out. But mm. in the meantime, I don't think that's a reason to be against Ted. Well, I've already outlined why I'm against it. We're now talking about secondary reasons that I'm against it. But the primary reasons oh, are right. that, that I think the, the quality of the speakers and the quality of the ideas that are presented in no way, and knowing something about... Well, listen, I guess you are against professional wrestling, man. I can, I can, <laughs> I can imagine that, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think the TED speakers should be in the ring. No, I, I, I'd pay money to see that. I pay money to see SmackDowns of Ted Talker. That's, you that's gotta, where you gotta, it needs to go. You got one there. That's where it needs to go. Now you're talking. I just think in the yeah, grand no, scheme I, of things, Ted is probably better than, you know, the World Wrestling Federation. You, know? mm, you see, again, I think you're that's... not sure of that. I think they're of the same intellectual quality, actually. In fact, really? I... The I, same? I, oh, come on. I mean, they may share some some aspects but they're, I mean, they're certainly not the same mm. well, of course they're scripted but that's i mean well what we're doing here isn't well even what we're doing here is scripted i've got my own script and you've got your script you know well mm. i mean it may be jumbled up in, in in piecemeal and come out piece by piece but uh you know we've both got agendas i guess so but i my real concern with Ted is I don't think it's really advancing intellectual discourse. And Not yours or mine, but I know people whose intellectual discourse has been enlarged by that. People I've met and said, hey, did you see that Ted thing? I'd never thought about anything like that before. 
And I don't know. It's hard for me to be against that. Even, I mean, even if it's something trivial, trivially true and obvious to you and me, it wasn't to this guy. And they could have gotten the same thing from a Bob Dylan album. Yes, and, and I like Bob Dylan, too. But they got <laughs> it from Ted. Well, anyway, go on. <laughs> I'll just jump yeah. in when I have to. <laughs> no, I think I, my feeling is that you're right in terms of if it inspires, if it angers people and inspires them through their anger, then I'm sympathetic to that. But I think what we need to do, well, there are already anti-Ted conferences. Uh, <laughs> Anti-Ted or meta-Ted? No, they're anti this anti bill. Anti-Ted. Really? Have you heard of Bill? Who? Bill, that's yeah. the anti. That's the first anti-Ted conference. <laughs> Great, I'm sure I'd love them too. Yeah, I'm not. I had anything to do with Bill, but there's there are a couple of others which which claim to be anti-Ted. But anyway, um, so no, I I think the uh, yeah the, there are some curious things about Ted, but I think we've probably covered yeah, this think, enough. Yeah, no, I think we're done with Ted. I think I think we we're not going to get any more out of that topic. So let's Certainly. go on. <laughs> Well, in a similar light, there seems to be... It, it's ironic that this is the day that... Uh, well, perhaps it wasn't today, perhaps it was yesterday that Ted Stevens passed away. But the whole notion of net neutrality and this... I mean, three, four years ago when this discussion associated with net neutrality came out, I kind of raised my hand uh, on a, a podcast called Podcast 411 and said, um, there's something slightly wrong with the definition of net neutrality that's being offered by companies like Google. And the definition says that uh, the cable companies are what is going to be controlling the Internet. Well, my experience is that Google is what's controlling the Internet. And if net neutrality should be applied to cable companies, it also should have been applied to Google. But Google framed the whole narrative up until this week when well, they announced week, a deal yeah. with Verizon. Yeah, right. no, so, they, well, there is no deal. I thought that was the whole well, point. They announced there is no deal. Well, they well except. But it came the, out that they were having these very interesting negotiations. I think there's still there's still fine print. I'm yet to go through the fine print, but I've heard that the fine print is what makes the no deal particularly interesting. But my the whole notion of net neutrality as it's been framed in this country, and in terms of the media, in terms of obviously politicians, and in terms of a certain aspect of intelligentsia. No one mentioned the fact that net neutrality should be end-to-end. -end. I just find it phenomenal. My experience, um, noble8.com slash googleblock.html for folks listening in, my experience when Google blocked Noble8 uh, for a period of time and all the organizations, the EFF in particular, when they were supposed to you know, protect the Internet against the likes of companies like Google... They did absolutely nothing, and it turned out we're actually being funded by Google at the time. Google has done the equivalent of BP in terms of just flooding every Internet organization that's supposed to be about the free Internet with money. And it's very interesting, as we even have this discussion, yeah. what it will look like in two, three, five, ten years based on the way these corporations are cutting it. Uh, problem in this capitalism itself that that's mm. got to go. The, the, well, it all, is. Yeah, the Taliban are winning. So. Yeah, but that's exactly the point, is that yeah. these all these issues, we can deal with them one at a time, and and they just keep popping up, you know, like mushrooms. You know, you mm. cut off this one, and then another mm. one pops up somewhere else until we kill it at the root. 
Yeah, the thing that really concerned me is, and particularly people that I would think would be smarter than this, didn't see the the biodirectional nature of net neutrality. And I've heard um, various net neutrality activists interviewed recently, and one fellow in particular was asked if he felt foolish by his trust of Google, and he said, well, no one knew, you know, three, four years ago that Google would do something like this. And I really, <laughs> I'm just so completely stunned yeah. at the... At the no one knew. Of, right, of course of no one knew. <laughs> well, I knew. I knew three years ago when Google blocked Noble all the nonsense yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. that I had on a personal yeah. experience. Well, no this. one knew because they didn't want to know and they weren't thinking about it. They yeah. had no incentive to... Well, they were being told shav- something. shoved down your throat. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I think the issue of net neutrality is something that... Uh, I, I guess, you know, worst comes to worst, we'll just start passing these things out on burnt CDs that we send internationally to each other, and, you know, that's the way it will be done in the future, but... Um, I'm I'm hoping to see the end of our present economic system before that <laughs> comes about, I hope. Yeah, well, my main concern is actually living through what actually comes through ah, that. Yeah, so, well, this could be quite nasty, you're right. Yeah, just surviving yeah. it will be quite a feat, probably. Yeah, yes. So where are you, you, you would classify yourself in some regard as a libertarian, but you also have no, elements, no, left? not at all. Not at all? No. So what would you classify yourself as? So there's no class, so you wouldn't even say that you were left libertarian? Well, I'm, I'm certainly more left than right. I, well, actually, there was a guy named F.M. Esfandieri, who later changed his name to F.M. 2010, mm-hmm. um, who wrote a book called Upwingers. Mm-hmm. And I thought he's you know people see tend to see things on a on a spectrum from right to left on a linear a thing. And false. I see myself as off that line completely. Well, it's not in, even a line. It's not even a line. Well, I mean, the line, it, it, no, there is a line from left to right. What I'm saying is above that line is where I'm saying it's more important to be somewhere above that line on, in another dimension. And 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 that your placement up there is irrelevant to where you fall on some issues. I'm probably very right wing on other issues. I may be left wing or somewhere. They can. I'm I'm just not concerned where they fall back down on the line. Here's my point. If you go to a site called politicalcompass.org, and it's probably important that you're, the, the listeners appreciate this as well. When there is, is again a, politicalcompass.org? There is a lie in this country that there is just a linear access left-right. The reality is that is that there is at least one other dimension, and the dimension is libertarian-authoritarian. You can have... You can have left libertarians, left authoritarians, yeah, okay. right libertarians, yeah, right authoritarians. Yeah. And I would argue that there are actually much, there are many more dimensions than just the two. That oh, are yes, portrayed. there's an infinite number of Certainly. potential dimensions here. Yeah, yeah but, right. So my experience is this whole, particularly when there's a, a certain narrative that says that fascism and communism are the same thing in this country, because people don't actually understand that the, the authoritarian libertarian access. Mm-hmm. But uh, so my my views are typically very left libertarian, um, which is I, yeah against uh, authority. Which is I'm both, not against it, but but it, it's the notion that both the the government and the companies can both be evil at the same time. You know? <laughs> no shit. <laughs> so I would think that this would be relatively obvious, but the you would think so. Well, it isn't because people are stuck down on right and left. Exactly, that's exactly the point. So 
my view is that that individual freedoms, and this is not you know going out and killing people, but the individual freedoms actually don't relate to corporate governance in any way, shape, or form, and they don't relate to government. Why does governance. the government have anything to do with all this talk about gay marriage? Why is the mm. government involved in marriage at all? Why is it any of their business? Well, you get these strange paradoxes where people that would normally be against the government are for the government when the government is supposed to be against what they're against. Yeah, so, I, know. It's just, I, I just don't say, I, it seems to yeah. be arguing about gay rights and gay marriage is that we ought to get the government out of marriage altogether. It has no business sanctioning any kind of marriage. Mm-hmm. Well, the beauty is that the, uh, the Reagan, oh no, he was a George H.W. Bush appointed judge uh, who was seen as being uh, an arch-conservative who ruled in the gay marriage case in California was actually gay himself. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's a great world. Exactly. That is exactly my view, Heron. Uh, so, yes. So we've covered net neutrality and we've come to the same conclusion. Let me just back that up my to-do list. Uh, time productivity will return to... Oh, okay. So You got a list there? Oh yes. How many yeah, things I, have we got? How far along are we on your list? Uh, we're pretty well halfway. We really? could be. Oh, we cool. could be. Two, we could be. We could be three fifths of the way there, depending on the one. <laughs> okay. a, a few other things. <laughs> you know, these are perfect places that we can put commercials in later. You know, every, every half hour, I have to take. Three, uh, they have to be short commercials, little little blurbs on something. I think we should record anti-commercials. Okay, anti-commercial. Yes, uh, you know, something uh, something designed to wake people up. You know, a little public service announcement. Yeah, very much so. Very okay. much so. Anyway. So, so what else was I looking to cover? Uh, this idea of the high level of interest, which really goes back to the, um, the discussion associated with TED, because I think both you and I assume a very high level of interest, which may actually be the, the downfall of this format of recording. But certainly, I mean, for example, looking back on the SRI talk, you know, my view with regards to that talk was it was pitched at someone with very general level, and your view was that you took away a few words occasionally. Yeah. And I think this is a this is a a universal problem with people that feel particularly passionate about their their areas. So, in your case, obviously, uh, aspects of linguistics. In my case, aspects of simulation. But it's something which is very difficult to break because you need almost constant prodding from people that have a very general level of interest to, I guess, refactor where you're coming from. And my my own reaction is to not even necessarily use visionary talk, but just talk about things that are going on currently, which seem wonderful and captivating uh, to me, but may still be completely mispitched for the people that I'm talking to. When you start with linguistics, there's, there's an element of almost listening and framing based in your conversations, but it also causes almost a, I don't know, a repeating of the same ideas in, in some regard to how do you frame your particular level of interest with regards to talking to someone who may have a general level of knowledge? Well, I start by listening to where they're coming from and finding out what I can say. I mean, if I'm you know, depending upon what they're capable of hearing, then I'll I'll know better how to talk with them. Mm. I guess the that works well. I mean, language is a very intimate thing. We've talked about this in the past. That basically, and I actually went back onto Talkshoe while I was looking for the previous show, and really quite dismayed with the uh, 
I guess, what, what do you call them? The haters, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good name. <laughs> there are plenty of them out there. They're yes. pissed off. The ones who are pissed off. <laughs> mm. It is a funny phenomenon that the pissed off ones are the ones that actually leave the uh, the commentary. But anyway, so I guess language, and this is something, this is a point that you made in our first conversation, that language was something that... Uh, people were considerably more connected with, which probably gives you an easier access to a general audience because language is something which is which people are immediately receptive to. But I start talking about abstract concepts associated with simulation and these kind of <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah, you're it really right. is a very different yeah. spec. Well, you've got some... I mean, I have a small audience. I figure my audience is 1% or 2%. Your yeah. audience has got to be a tenth or less 1% of what I've got. Mm. You know, that, the, like I say, with the internet, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's still a million. Yeah, so. that's still a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess my view has always been that within within that tenth of a percent, there is probably one percent around that that understand that this is good and beneficial in some regard. But I also think um, the notion of framing uh, a discussion is is really quite important. Do you have a series of tricks which you obviously picked up? Um, in terms of ways to, to I guess, get people interacting or moving into your... Yeah, it's uh, real simple. I, I, and it's not easy to do, but it's called listening. Mm. You know, I, I, I struggle with that, you know, because I go in there full of my own ideas and how I've learned to talk about them. But every time I start off with my ideas and how I think I should talk about them, I find that it goes nowhere. Mm. That uh, and the most productive ones are the ones when, at least in the beginning, when I shut up and ask questions. Or if they come in with a question, that helps. I always try to engineer other people into asking questions, because um, if you know, if I just come in and start telling people what the answers are, nobody's interested. But if I can get them to ask a question, then they're actually listening for an answer. Yes, yes. I guess the. It's interesting because I've I've gone back to your very early catalogue, like shows one, two, three, four, in terms of getting a sense of where this thing came from. Well, that's not where it came from. Exactly, it, it, that's it the point I was going to make. Yeah, exactly. The, the people that you're talking stuff. about in one, two, three, four are already very familiar with the kind of uh, discourse format, and also really with your broader thinking. Yeah. So. What, what interests me was the notion that there is, in fact, a much larger philosophy which these people are more kind of intimately acquainted with, associated with notions of um, not necessarily solitude, but uh, the fact that, you know, marriage may mess up the, the, uh, the equilibrium of some kind of greater belief or these kind of things, which is something which has kind of gone through as a kind of back discourse through our discussions so far, but I've never really... I've got the sense of a precursory level about why you feel that's the case. I don't but think it is the case for everybody. I think mm. that's something that I know people who are happily married and monogamous and it is right for them and they were lucky mm. that they found uh, what worked for them. But there, are, I think monogamy is something for a tiny percentage of the population, maybe 5%, maybe 1%. For some people, it is their life. It works. For most people, it is uh, a nightmare of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, of acceptance of less than what they want. Mm. 
Your adopted mother, after your adopted father passed away, did she remarry? No. Okay. So, my experience was of... uh, My parents got divorced just uh, when I was probably 10, 11. Uh, My mother never remarried. My father remarried uh, multiple times. And I guess that has always framed my view with marriage specifically and the sense that I don't want to the kind of experiences that my father still continues to have to this day I don't want to have in my life yeah and I think that really has been a strong kind of backstory to and also my mother's experiences as well in, in contrast to that and I think it's a very interesting thing because it is really one of the few representations where I can look at both my parents and say, I've made the decisions that I've made primarily based on looking at my parents with regards to this thing. Um, But having said that, I also think that um, the, I have a a co-worker who has just finished getting divorced who's a contemporary of mine. And the experiences that he had just appeared to be so completely disastrous to him. Uh, mind you, he was married for you know nine years uh, and then got divorced. And I have friends that are single, and it's right for them as well. But I think the... Certainly... I mean, I don't have any children. I think if I had children, my life might change quite dramatically in terms of what we describe oh, as yeah. its productivity. Oh, yes, it would... <laughs> Uh, dramatically but um yeah i don't know i think the, the marriage issue no, is it, it should change dramatically certainly. if you're gonna have kids yes. that's that's a decision with consequences very I mean, much. your life should change yeah very much so it didn't for either of my parents when i was born i was very much um growing up really not even interacted with by yeah. either of my parents yeah. um and i think that kind of framed my when my brother, my brother's I think a you're in, I mean, I think that's the way most kids are. People have kids and think they can just go on with their lives. Well, I don't know. I know a lot of people where the kids are like the center of their lives, too. I think it is actually a philosophical well, choice. Well, there are differences. You're like, right. It's not everybody. Uh, but it's a uh, great many. I think you're probably in the majority. Mm, mm, I don't know about that. But I, anyway, I think there are these things which... A really, it, it's always interested me this whole notion of early life mapping, and certainly in trying to simulate this as well. You know, the, the I mean, you find this with dogs in particular that the experiences that they have early in their lives will really frame what kind of creatures they are throughout the remainder of their lives. And I think humans yeah. are, are very much this case. I've got a large cat that just jumped yeah. over the microphone. <laughs> I was saying that. But, um, yeah, I think the yeah the, the element of uh, fragile early psychology is something that uh, probably more advanced thinking creatures share. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing because... Certainly, listening back, as I have in terms of writing notes, listening back to our uh, first few recordings and also listening to some of the other... uh, The elements of relationship and marriage and sexuality and these kind of things are continuing themes through your your, um, 
through your recordings in particular. <laughs> I haven't been in mine yeah. up until now. So, um, yeah, yeah. But, um, no, you're right. They're, they are in there throughout the all. It's not much, though. I don't think. I think it's a small percentage as far as time goes. But you're right. It does show up, and when it does, uh, mm. it's pretty much the same story. <laughs> mm. So, I mean, in your recent life, do you date? Uh, no, I haven't been on a date in ages. I'm 64, so and and the thing is, old women don't turn me on, mm. you know. And the mm. women who do turn me on probably aren't interested in the 64 year old guy. Yes. And and frankly, like I say, I've really been there and done that, so I don't have a whole lot of energy on that stuff anymore. That's one of the reasons okay. I don't think of myself as a human, really. Mm. That's interesting. That really is interesting. Yeah. If the right situation showed up, I'm sure my un- my monkey would become quite activated. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But I'm, yeah. I'm very reticent to get involved in that kind of relationship also. I mean, I have had opportunities to do that. And when I look at the reality of it and dealing with another human being in an intimate surrounding, it looks to me like, you know, an evening of fun uh probably is going to end up into a, a, a difficult situation for her at least mm. and uh and th- and thus for me and mm. it's just it just looks to me like it's uh, just better to stay friends mm. well yeah there are certain things in my own uh yeah i don't even know how to frame this there are certain topics that i'm just not going to discuss basically in this format <laughs> and i think um Certainly, with regards to my parents, it's probably one of the things that I won't yeah. discuss. But there's there, this um, certainly neither of my parents follow that course of thinking, um, and I think yeah, it's interesting because I don't think it's something which is necessary for people of your age. Well, the thing is, I was a hippie, and for mm. like ten years, it was nothing but sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I and I, <laughs> you've probably heard me say most men are really just horny monkeys. They have mm. never been laid enough, so basically it's on their mind all every day, all day. That's mm. all they think about. Under There's this sort of subtext about getting laid. Mm. And it's just like if you've actually had enough, that just... I mean, people start to get kinky in their 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. And that's when that's the time when you have to come to terms with this because when you're twenties, sex is cosmic, man. But <laughs> it isn't when you're in your thirties. In order to get it cosmic, you have to start getting weird. Uh-huh. So it becomes something that's considerably more psychological. Yeah, yeah. And I, luckily, like I say, through my twenties and thirties, I got laid so much <laughs> that it's just you know. I, and I just wasn't interested in getting weird. Mm. You know, it just getting weird just didn't seem like fun. I had a couple menage a trois. That was fun, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But, you know, it's, you know, I guess a menage a quad <laughs> would have been there. But it just, you know, it began to, I don't know, my interests were uh, in other areas. You know, my spiritual life was, you know, my my OCD, my interest in linguistics uh, were just more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a natural I have a natural aversion to again what I'll call the bourgeois, which is basically what you're describing. But it comes again from my early childhood um, and my experiences. My father, in particular, was very well. He was a kind of he wrote on Marxism and union movements and these kind of things. So I'm very much of that 
period in my father's life and my mother's life as well. Almost, um, I don't know, authoritarian kind of Marxist mm. background in these yeah. in these views. Ooh. So the the bourgeois is always seen as being very much the anti. It's funny because when I was living in the UK, it came to the point where I actually felt middle class, and then I kind of felt <laughs> dirty about the whole experience. As I sit here in in a relatively yeah. no nice wonder you feel that way. That explains your feelings about Ted too. Certainly, no, exactly. No, this this is this is exactly yeah. the point. Yeah. So yes, I I um I guess yeah, it's funny because um. My friends who went through, as you described, this kind of uh, every generation has had this kind of hedonistic element to it. I mean, it certainly existed. Oh, in the I don't 50s think that's true at all. And, oh. oh no, I think uh, prior to World War Two, there was uh, well uh, the, the Frank Sinatra phenomenon in the forties was uh, beginning of some of that. But uh, no, no, I think about Dada and did. Post post First World War and you know the twenties and the yeah, but that's all the past that. century. I mean, when you say always, I mean, you're, we're talking about okay, the last ten thousand years of human history. The, no, every no no, the whole notion of the history of uh, you know austere cultural taboos associated with sexuality was just because there was always a group that was you no, know most of our history is tribal. I mean, we have to. If you want to talk about our history, you just can't talk about the last century or two. I'm not talking about the last century. I think at every. I mean, you know, my background reading on this is Foucault and Sartre and depravity and religion and all this kind of stuff. And my sense from reading them, and also through you know, sense of sensibility, Jane Austen, all these kind of things, there was clearly uh, strong hedonistic elements going back through. To tribalism, and I don't think these this whole narrative associated with you know puritanical views of history and these kind of things, I think, are completely fallacious and created by a very small percentage of the population that want to create this notion that sex is new and radical in order to demonise it. The realities of it, as you say, gone back to tribalism, but every generation has had a hedonistic element. Well, that, 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 that's exactly what doesn't make it generational. It's human. It's that's not exactly about what, generations. Certainly. You know. Yeah, that, exactly. That's, yeah. We are agreeing with regards okay. to that point. Yeah. Uh, no, you're so, right. Uh, yeah, that goes back all the way. <laughs> yeah. So, my, but yeah, it's certainly if my peers, I mean... But societal only, repression is what's interesting in this regard. And there was... <laughs> repression all the way back in tribe you can't imagine more con conscribed culture than tribal culture with its taboos they may or may not be sexual but the the taboos the things that can and can't be said in tribal cultures are highly proscribed and that's what we've been breaking ourselves with over centuries mm. is from our tribal proscriptions mm. uh, i think there have always been things... I mean, for example, sexually transmitted diseases are the, are the contemporary reality which frame a lot of the... So, I mean, my... Yeah, I, I think you're right, but I think it's just a reframing of the same thing that has existed at, at a number of genera, and it's not a movement away from that. It's just framed differently. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe... I. I always find myself slipping into an element of relativism with all of this, but I don't see that being 
sharp distinctions aside from the fact that I think it's a different framing around whatever psychology we're dealing with, but it's the same kind of uh, battle that has to do with... You know, I guess it's whether you feel... that I feel that we are on the cusp, really, of a new civilization. Mm. I think we are going to witness the end of the age of nation-states, the end of Mm. capitalism, the end of religion as we've known it, and over the next 30 to 50 years, I I think we're going to see this come into shape. And my argument has always been that that was, and you are of my parents' generation. I mean, my parents, to a certain extent, were hippies as well. They met at yeah. a Bob Dylan concert, so, yeah. you know, the rest writes itself. <laughs> I see that very much from my parents' generation, and I think what we need to learn from that is that it didn't happen, and the reasons why that didn't happen, we need to learn about those reasons. Oh, I have no problem with that. We didn't have. We were very naive in the sixties. Uh, we yes. thought it, we thought it was going to happen then. Well, actually, it did happen. We were just too stupid to see it. Uh, that's why I say it, I think we're still thirty to fifty years away from this happening. Mm. But I still think it's happening. I think we are in the middle of of a of a really a new epoch of earth's development the end you know like i say the beginning of the first global civilization mm. and i think that's inevitable i think that's where it's been pointed for thousands of years and um i think in the next 30 or 50 years we're going to see that realized mm. I, of course i i might just be totally wacko <laughs> but see i don't even care the thing is that's what i want <laughs> I don't care whether it's really going to happen. The fact is, I don't know whether it's going to happen. That's just my story. That's the way I've put together the data that I've got, and I like that story. And I'm going to do what I can to make that story come true. And I don't really give a shit about whether it really is or not, because the truth is I don't know. But when you observe riots, for example, in L.A., do you get the sense that this is the start of it? Do you oh, get no. the sense that... No, no, I think that's... Again, I use the metaphor of butterfly turning into a caterpillar. Mm. Uh, and it's a complex process of, uh, in the beginning, uh, 100% of the caterpillar cells are doing caterpillar business. And, I mean, you've mm. heard this story before. So. Many times, Okay, yes. so uh, that's the settings. way I see it. There are yeah. a lot of local disturbances going on, all sorts of things. And since we've never seen this before, I don't think it's, it's possible even to really analyze it with too much precision. All mm. we can do is draw analogies with metamorphosis. And there are plenty of good analogies, but, um, you know, specifically, I, in fact, I was in the Watts riots. I worked at a photography studio at the time, and we drove down there to take pictures. That was interesting. <laughs> so, but, uh, and in fact, the last time I think I felt suicidal was uh, during the second riots in L.A. after the uh, Rodney King stuff. Mm. Uh, but that, that was also associated the, with a move, wasn't it? That you were moving out of one place to another, or was I, that after? Um, it might have been. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, it's hard for me. To, if, if I said that somewhere, then it probably is true. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, I'm not quite sure whether that's true. I think you, now that you mention it, that probably is true. But in any case, I was feeling very vulnerable. Yes. And uh, that whole thing was very disturbing to me. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think, yeah, we are committing our minds to the matrix fundamentally here, as you've described. I've been, um, I I periodically return to um, Cuba in the 1950s in my reading, and also recently I saw a, a 
um, it's not even a documentary, it's a dramatization with um, Alicia Del Toro playing Che Guevara. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, um, I returned to the idea of the, the kind of sense, and this goes back actually to uh, one of my father's friends from his university days went on to be a union leader in Australia and he regularly would have, uh, you know, people coming from Cuba and very much, you know, part of the revolutionary spirit. So I've seen yeah. that on the ground as well. It always strikes me the, you know, the, the, the peaceful versus the armed versus the is it really revolution or are you just replacing it with the same people? I mean, I think yeah. the, the problem with these things is that when you start to look at things that have occurred in the past as potential of what may happen in the future, and I certainly think about L.A. and New Orleans with Katrina, and because if it's going to happen and I am in the U.S., it will probably look somewhat like these yeah, it could get very ugly. I would think the thing is to get out of uh, the U.S. when this happens. <laughs> if you have the means to. Yeah, well, it's something to be, well, the thing is to be thinking that. about it now and to yeah. keep your eye on uh, Google News and know what you're looking for and get out before it happens. Yeah. My instinct has always been, and I had this whole notion of um, uh, ground escape. We talked a little bit about the Mushroom Boy, but these kind of... Uh, narratives have, have gone on through my life. I get the sense that um, you can never really predict these things until they're completely happening around you, and then that is the point where you where you have to uh, have to flee. Um, I don't through. think that's true. I mean, it may. I think it's true for most people, but I think mm. if you're actually paying attention and if you have something on the ball, you may have some false indications and you may jump the gun early. Early, times. yes. Uh, but that's better than being too late. Well, it's to do with means as well. Yeah, it'd I be mean, nice to have a bunch of money. <laughs> that's the that's the point. If you don't have the means, then you're going yeah. to be stuck in the situation. I've already planned all this stuff out. I've got a I've got plans for a group of about 500 people and four or five rather large sailing vessels. Oh, very good. And just going out to sea with people with various skills and <laughs> supplies. Oh, the the Noah's Ark idea. Okay, the Noah's Ark idea. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it could get real damn ugly. Yeah. Have you been at sea around whales and these kind of things? No. Oh, I, I mean, I have been around. I have been on a cruise here in California and seen the whales. Yeah. But you've not been in a in a small sailing boat and have whales go underneath the boat and well, these kind. Yeah, of... but it wasn't a small sailing boat. It was a you know a probably That's exactly an eighty point. foot. Uh, so yeah. Thing. But yeah, the the whales were right next to it. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but not the same as in a sailboat. You're right. <laughs> mm. I am. Um, I I have uh, boat building books currently. I used to build boats as a child out of balsa wood, so I know the ah. techniques search, associated with stretching wood and these kind of and steaming and all yeah. this stuff. And uh, both in, the, the way to build boats in the UK is very different than the way to build boats here. And a lot of the techniques that they use in the UK would probably never. You know, never be proposed here, but are very much organic in terms of making do with the um, the stuff that you have available to you. Yeah. So I think in in the long term, I would like to actually build um, sailable vessels just to get the sense of how to do that. In terms of this, and well, it's also great. We'll have an opportunity. <laughs> it's also great fun. I mean, it's it's yeah. great fun to, to make something oh, of that. Yeah. Scale. Be, yeah, be uh, but uh, so yes, I. It's a question of whether or not the 
you know the kind of experiences that will surround it. I listened to um, I, I listened to a couple of podcasts on the far right as well, just because they were already bunkering down for this thing yeah, in anticipation. Yeah, right. yeah, they've already um, got their weapons. <laughs> exactly. No, they're already so yeah. Um, and I do it not because I think there's always the the predictive element that this thing is going to happen very soon or may even happen at all. But I think at the same point, you need to be mindful about these kind of circumstances because, you know, particularly well, living I'm in the US. I'm not in a position to do anything about it at this point, but mm. I am thinking about it. And mm. if I was in a position to do something about it, I actually probably would be doing something about it. Mm. But since I'm not, then I'm I'm not going to worry about it. You know, if mm. I get squashed, I'll get squashed. But mm. but um, yeah, I think uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to prepare for something like this. But how do you prepare? Well, like I said, if if I had the well, I don't think you can prepare unless you're rich. <laughs> Well, the other way you can prepare, I think this is a disempowerment well, argument. No, but here. the other way is the only other preparation is to become as intelligent and flexible as you can possibly become. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you've got a bunch of money, then you can put that flexibility and intelligence into some practical uh, method. Mm. And like I say, my idea is to put together a group of people with various skills on some sailboats that are well stocked and leave. Mm. But you'd need to have you'd need to have access to money and sales. Well, you know, actually, you wouldn't need that much if you're really smart about this and you just buy the whole thing on credit. If you got people with good <laughs> credit lines, when the end comes, you won't really have to pay for any of this shit. You just yeah. have to be making your payments up until yeah. the time. You up leave. until the time that the end comes. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, in some sense, it really takes some organization and monetary skills. It does take money, but you don't actually have to have all that money. You just need mm. to be able to borrow it. Mm. Yes, yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting intellectual problem. But certainly, <laughs> returning to the the notions of the way things were done in Cuba uh, in the nineteen fifties, uh, oh, it yeah. it always strikes me as a as a strange phenomenon that these things have already occurred in certain parts yeah. of the world. Yeah, the idea of taking up guns. Well, the American Revolution or the Cuban Revolution, I mean, uh, that's so strange to me. I, I don't know. I mean, I I just don't know how I'd respond. I mean, I was in Vietnam, mm. but, you know, so I'm, I'm familiar with some aspects of that. But, but um, the idea of being involved, of taking up a gun and going out into the jungle... Uh, just, I, mean, I think it's appropriate for, you know, I think that's Cuba. I just don't think, I don't think it's going to work that way in America. Yes. But do you think others will think the same way? That's the... No, I don't think so. I think we, the only ones who are active are the right-wing militias. Yeah. And their compounds and what, uh, and then you got the army. Yes. You know, so uh, how America's going to go... Uh, like I say, it could be real interesting. <laughs> you know, it could go all sorts of ways. But in either case, like I say, I'm not sure I want to be here when it happens. Yeah, I'm not sure where you'd go. The idea of find, you know, some of stocking a farm up in Oregon somewhere. Shit, they're just going to walk right in with their tanks and kill you and take whatever you've got. I mean, if it gets to that, so I, I think the thing is to get out. You know, go to yeah. go to Mexico, someplace where they're not even going to notice it. 
Well, the Mexico, it's already um, to the... Yeah, that, well, but I'm saying you go somewhere in some little village in the middle of the mountain somewhere mm-hmm. and nobody gives I a think shit. I think there, there are probably substantial... I mean, the U.S. is huge. And my sense is certainly in Oregon, and I know just through my travels by train, I, I've yeah. met a fellow who whose parents had a place in Oregon that they intentionally lost in a hillside and all this kind yeah. of stuff. I think there are probably places to hide in the U.S. Yeah, there probably are. But if people are looking, though, then mm. you got Well, how well are they going to look? Well, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. Like I say, my, yeah. Yeah, I haven't, uh, since I don't have the funds, I haven't really had much of an opportunity to test any of the details of my system. Yes. <laughs> you know, if yes. I, like I say, if it was really a serious issue to think about, then obviously all of them. Like I say, my, my tendency now is to think about boats and leaving. Mm. But but you're right. There may be uh, it may be a better strategy to find some place here and and you know build a fortress or something. You know. Mm. Well, then you just become a target. I mean, I think the trick yeah. is just to to yeah. well, you know to, yeah to be invisible but to disappear still, yeah, and that, yeah, still survive. Yeah. So yeah. But my feeling has been well. Okay, yeah. The problem is weapons. Actually, as I see it, I mean. If you, the choice is whether or not you're going to be involved in defending yourself, that's why I want to leave because I really don't want to get into the idea of having to defend myself. Mm. And my sense well, is you even on a boat, target. I mean, this is the difficulty, the, the whole narrative associated, and this is the thing with these right wing folk: is you arm yourself, you immediately become a target. Well, not necessarily. It depends on how you arm yourself. I mean, I think you could do it, but again, it's not, it's just not much of, I haven't gone into a lot of detail with it because it's not a possibility for me to actually do right now. So <laughs> I've only thought about it, you know, very cursorily, you know. Yes. And what I, my, what the conclusion I came to is that if I chose to get involved with guns, then fuck guns. I want to get ground to ground missiles. I'm not going to, you know, get a bunch of AK-47s and have gunfights with people. If yeah. we're going to play that game, I want rocket launchers. <laughs> you know, tanks are the way to go. Well, yes. whatever. I'm not going to get into an AK-47 fight with somebody. Yes. You know, I mean, if we're going to play that game, then I'm going to play that game. You know, to win. Yeah. I mean, it's a nasty thing once you start considering all this stuff. Well, that's what struck me with regards to the Che thing, was the, uh, I guess reading reading about it and seeing photographs and that kind of stuff is very different to seeing it actually portrayed uh, in a, even a documentary or whatever whatever the Che thing yeah. was. Uh, uh, and I think the sense that I got through that was very different. I have um, a couple of, I mean, he wrote Extensively, I've translated. Have you read? Have you read Che? Yes, okay, um, I haven't. All I've seen so, the movie, so I don't. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit more. It's it's a bit different in his his own words, um, and uh, you do get a sense that he's someone who is very uh, ideologically driven, which you kind of get through the film, but not to the same depth of actually hearing well, his work. Well, you've got to be, to put yourself in that position. That's mm. why I can't imagine myself stupid. doing that. This is the thing. So once you get over the fact that he's not stupid and he's putting himself in that position, you realize really how, um, not just ideologically driven, I mean, he was a medical doctor, he was yeah. a trained professional. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a very well, strange... Well, Che, that's the thing, is that's... He's Che. That's what makes him who he is. Yes. You know, and whether that's a choice or something he was stuck with, 
uh, is a good question, probably. Yeah, well, when he was surrounded by the Bolivians and the FBI or the CIA, it was probably uh, <laughs> something he was probably stuck something with. stuck with, really, <laughs> by that point. Well, let's hope he, he was able to say, this is what I chose. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm inspired and befuddled by him. I mean, I, I certainly don't have that kind of commitment. I, it's hard for me to imagine myself doing that. On the other hand, I'm stuck. I'm just enough of an asshole and an arrogant bastard, and old enough yeah. to where I might. I can see myself giving my life uh, just to be an asshole. Yes. Just to prove a point. Yes. <laughs> you know, but he was a young guy. <laughs> Well, yeah, relatively young. Yes, yes. And yeah, he, how a, many kids did he have? I, I don't five. Know, he had no business being married. What an, I thought that was bullshit. <laughs> See, that's why I never got married. You know, it's because I knew I couldn't be married and give any and give myself to that situation, because yeah. my commitment was to linguistics. I'm as committed to linguistics as Che was to the revolution. It's just I don't have to kill anybody for mine. Well, maybe that's the ultimate commitment, which, yes, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, yeah, very, very strange mindset. The interesting thing is with regards to the firearms, though, and I think that the, the unspoken part of this is that the act of actually carrying firearms in these circumstances basically completely changes the dynamic. And both, well, I'm not saying it explicitly, you're saying it explicitly, but by not carrying firearms, we are in different positions. Oh, completely, yeah. yeah. The, That's a the, fundamental choice about whether yes. or not you're going to arm yourself. Yes. And that's I, why I want to leave. And even then, I'd still want to have, I'd still arm myself on the boats, and I'd arm myself with bazookas and cannons. Yeah. And I wouldn't let any other boat get anywhere near us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my fear is that there are probably boats with bigger guns. No matter. This well, is but that, that's always true. But, I mean, yeah, you can't be absolutely sure. But I'm certainly not going to play the gunfight game. Mm. But by going on a boat, you're ultimately isolating yourself in a way where you're very easy to be found. Well, it depends on where you go. If you mm. just go out, if you've got everything you need to live without even going ashore anywhere, or you can find some silly island somewhere. Yeah. You know, I don't know, I, you know, but the ocean is a really big place. I know, <laughs> you know, but it's not a place which is particularly good for humans to survive on for extended periods well, I of think time. It, well, it depends on how well prepared you are. I think we could survive indefinitely out there. Um, I don't have any good... Right technology. Well, yes, you could get supplies of fresh water, and certainly humans have survived on the sea for months. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's, I, you know, and plus I think, uh, well, and you may not even need to stay at sea. You may be able to find some place that's essentially uninhabitable under ordinary circumstances. Well, they're typically also places that are very difficult to land a boat on as well. Well, there's so. all sorts, like I say, it would require a great deal of research <laughs> to actually put this plan together. Certainly. And we but not but, but one of the choices is whether or not to arm yourself, though. That's a fundamental choice. Yes. What's your choice? Do we arm My, ourselves or not? I, I, From everything that I've seen so far, although I can understand why people do arm themselves, I wouldn't, you because wouldn't. I think... Okay. 
Well, you I can't think, come on my boat then. Well, I'm not going to. I don't want to go on your boat, Aaron. It go on like your own damn fish. boat. <laughs> I'm not even going on the sea. Oh, okay. That's your idea, Aaron. Okay. All right. Land is good for me. I can hide in small places. Okay, on find a cave somewhere up in Napa exactly. Valley. Exactly. You know, I mean, I think just getting on a boat is just like the end game as far as I'm concerned. Because, yeah, you, you want to make sure that no one can, uh, you know, no one can kind of single you out being on a being on a thing that's on the sea, I think, strikes me as, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the history of humanity has been very good at surviving, actually, on land and in a wide variety of conditions. No, you're but, right. You're right. The question is, who is it going to be? Is it the militias and the military? Mm. Mm. Well, then you need good eyesight or binoculars, and uh, <laughs> yeah. that's it. Yeah, and good camouflage. But, yeah. I mean, but, but what's the point of surviving in that kind of situation, though? I mean, if that's how I have to survive in hiding, what's the point? Because eventually the, the dynamic has to change. It can't be ongoing. Um, and I think your ability to find places. I mean, I've walked for long distances. I've walked in the desert. I've walked through desert heat, this kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't have any problems with regards to walking for long periods of time. And as far as I'm concerned, we have implicit skills as monkeys which we very rarely use through civilized society, but would become very beneficial. I mean, in terms of building shelter, all this kind of stuff, yeah. uh, cultivating food, finding food, this kind of thing. So, yeah, I, my feeling is unarmed, wandering, evading wherever possible, maybe, you know, gathering uh, things of value, but really returning to a very primitive human yeah. life. And uh, avoiding people, because I think the average human who chooses to arm themselves, and this comes through continuously, that your best defense against firearms is to run in a kind of zigzag fashion away from them. <laughs> because they typically, yeah. humans aren't particularly good shots. I mean, even particularly exceptional shots yeah. aren't very good shots when yeah. they're put in crazy circumstances. So, yeah, just avoid the humans with the guns and keep <laughs> low profile and do what you need to do. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, well, see, it's a fundamentally different position, and I, I honor your position, but it's not mine. I'll go down fighting, I guess, on if I boat. have to. Yeah. I, can't think of I don't want worse. to just go on existing in the cracks while, while, uh, while the future of the world gets decided by a bunch of militiamen and army people. You're a dolphin person, and I'm a rat person, fundamentally. A so. dolphin person and a rat person? What theory is that? I haven't heard this Well, you, you go on the water, and I scurry. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, maybe we'll meet afterwards, and yeah, uh, you know, we'll, we'll share our experiences. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's, a funny, it's a funny thing, and it does come back periodically. And I think particularly when you look at the current economic conditions and the circumstances and the directions things are going. Well, how long uh, do you, th I mean, really, seriously, this, the present economic system, I mean, mm -hmm. you must see that the whole thing is a house of cards. Very much so. And, and at some point, the whole thing is going to collapse, the thing that strikes me living in Nevada, which is probably a bit different than living in California, is the potential for things to break down here seem to be considerably easier. My main concern is the use of the police force as a tool of uh, kind of corporate yeah. governance, because we don't pay taxes here that go to the police force. 
we and not uh, just the police, but the army too. You've well, got that exactly, is another consideration. So, my sense, just in terms of how policing in this state has changed in the past five years, seems to give me the sense, and also the way the police have been used in evictions and foreclosures and these kind yeah. of things, that really what we will end up with is a public army which is still yeah. against the public and a private army which is that against may the public. Not, yeah, well. Uh, one of my scenarios envisions, hopefully, that the ar- it might be possible for at least for the Army, the Federal Army, U.S. Army and uh, others that they can recruit, to at least maintain some kind of maybe draconian order, but mm. order nonetheless. And mm. that after some time, after some decades of that, uh, it may be possible to begin to reintroduce some kind of reasonableness. But it's really important to maintain order, to keep the trains running, as they say. I think the trains will be the first thing to go. Um, (laughs) Well, they already are. Well, no, actually, what we need to keep going is the Internet. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah, without the Internet, I think we are just screwed. I think we can survive without the Internet. I think those of us that will remember the Internet will probably be important. But um, I think well, the for internet... a short time, but we it, I don't see how we can have any kind of global civilization, which is where I think we're headed, where I, mm. where I choose to say we are headed. Uh, mm. I don't think that's possible without an Internet. Mm. So that, that's, that's a bottom line for me. We need the Internet. The problem is that we have no accurate account of what the Dark Ages was actually like. <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, you're right, yeah. What you're describing here is what actually occurred in the Dark Ages in terms of the destruction of literature and knowledge and these kind of things. And certainly when I lived in the UK, there was this pervasive view that people in the Dark Ages were fundamentally stupid. They didn't have hopes and dreams. They weren't creative thinkers. They just lived in filth, and this is what <laughs> they were... And I felt that that was just really disgusting because I thought it devalued human creativity and even in circumstances of immense poverty, humans are perfectly capable of being creative and uh, amazingly imaginative. Sure, one or two percent of them are. No, children are. Oh, I children think. are. Yeah, you're right, children are. So, but they are systematically repressed you know, brain and, yeah, damaged exactly. by their parents but, and their culture. I, I agree, I agree. But I don't think it eliminates human creativity. No, no, there are, like I say, it's one or two percent survive that programming. Mm. But I think we're already we already have the elements of kind of toppling, even with the internet. And this is quite ironic because the internet almost makes this feasible in terms of the kind of pulping of, of information, the the Wikipedia model of, of vast simplification. And uh, I think we we are almost on. I mean, you know, we are almost on the cusp of particularly when we start losing published books and these kind of things, the paper is not being scanned. It's like the movement from VHS to DVD. You know, they've lost whatever percentage you're willing to argue of of film over that period. And I think the same thing is happening currently with regards to books. Um, So I think we could already be on on the precipice, but we don't know what happened in the Dark Ages really fundamentally. What we know about is, you know, the, the history that we're given through this period. Yeah. Uh, but no, there's more scholarship well, that, there. W- yeah, we don't even know that about the 19th century. You know I mean? The 19th century is written by uh, 20th century historians. 
and some mm-hmm. nineteen and lots of nineteenth century documents themselves, but how real people lived. I mean, most literature has very little to do with, you know, what most humans are actually doing. However, there continues to be strong narrative. I mean, certainly in terms of family history, in terms of getting a sense of what actually occurred back then, there is still a relatively strong narrative history that humans carry on. Yeah. Maybe yeah, more so now. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, more than others. And, and I because think of writing. In part. Well, uh, how else? Well, through the whole notion of narrative history means it doesn't necessarily have to be written down. It's told through stories and these well, kind of things. But then that goes back thousands of years. Exactly. Yeah. So in terms of the things that we maintain, I think it's it's a very interesting time. And I... I have some sympathies with regards to your, we're on the cusp of something completely different, but I don't necessarily know whether that thing is better. I don't uh, think it, no, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's better. Is a caterpillar or, or is, a, is a butterfly better than a caterpillar? I no. think on a number of levels, yes. No, it's not. It's just there's a time for one and then there's a time for the other. That's all. In terms of movement, in terms of, the, no, look, you in giving the butterfly from caterpillar, you are certainly arguing that not only is there a different thing, but the butterfly is distinctly better. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's a time for each and that they're both perfect for their time. That a caterpillar is ideal for doing what caterpillars need to do in order to turn into butterflies. Do you think that would be conveyed to a general audience, though? I mean, when you describe that, that immediately gives the... the, the, Yeah, you're right, that most people tend to think, and that's one of the things I usually try to counteract, is that I'm not saying that the caterpillar, or that the butterfly is better than the caterpillar. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the whole process is good. Mm -hmm. But there, there is a time for each that's appropriate. There is a time for the caterpillar, and there is a time for the butterfly. And this is now the approaching time for the butterfly. That doesn't make the caterpillar bad. Mm. It just makes the caterpillar a caterpillar. Mm. Yes, probably the larvae to the fly. Yeah, there's the, a yeah, maggot. Yeah, the maggot to the yeah, fly the is a better fly. analogy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Are you a maggot or a fly? <laughs> my childhood in Australia was permeated with finding these bloated flies which were pregnant with thousands of larvae and just watching them kind of die and the larvae spewing forth from them. So it's a very strong imagery yeah, from where Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think it's interesting what will, will come in the future. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's going to be. The thing that concerns me is just vast simplification. I think the the loss of intellectual grit is really a phenomenon which I don't think has existed up until now. I, See, think- I don't think it's lost. I think it's expanded. It's not lost. It, 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 it never was. It's always been a tiny percentage of humans who were on the cusp of clear thinking and exploration and and all rigorous thought and all that stuff. Most people don't even approach that kind of stuff. It's a tiny percentage of people that that are... It's not whether they're capable of it. Probably lots of people are capable of it. It's just that most people don't do it. They watch television. They haven't read anything except TV Guide. But your description of the 
movement to the butterfly has these people changing their perspective as no, well. No, I don't think people are going to change. I think they're going to die, and I think the real hope is in the next couple generations of children being raised uh, in a world that, that leads them to think differently than their brain-damaged uh, ancestors. For some reason, I woke up. I, there was no reason for me to wake up. I was well on my way to being a normal human being when I was 21. And mm -hmm. for some reason, the universe reached out and woke me up from that and put me on a different path. And I know other people that have experienced the same thing. Mm. And I expect it's a sign of the times that the world we are living in is making it easier and easier for people to wake up from the cultural hypnotic trance. And that my expectation is, again, in the next 30 to 50 years, to see a sort of outbreak of what Buddhists call enlightenment. But, of course, I may be just a dreamer. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yes. I guess I have elements of that as well, but they're very heavily metered by the reality of the current circumstance. Uh, but it's not the reality. You've heard me talk about the five stupidities. That's merely your way, as one way of thinking about it. Okay, my, well... That's, okay, no, that's, that's, my, that's one yeah. analysis of yeah. the situation. Certainly. 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 And, and there are others, and you can commit yourself to anyone you want, uh, but as long as you remember that it's you that's making the commitment and giving the authority to the theory. I understand that. I understand that. But reality has a way of kind of slapping you in the face. Well, yeah, before. I've noticed that too. <laughs> but I find the word reality to be pretty useless. I would say experience tends to slap you in the face, especially if you get too comfortable <laughs> with your assumptions. Certainly, certainly. Which yes, okay, experience. But I don't okay. think the word reality is useful in this conversation. I don't think there's any conversation where the word reality, unless it's used in two sets of quotation marks, is a useful term. Certainly. Certainly. Well, Heron, we've touched on 65% uh, of the things that I wanted to discuss this evening and an additional 35% that I didn't think we'd discuss at all. <laughs> so I think it's been a good evening in terms of our, our continued conversations. And as always, you've left me with a lot of food for thought. So, I'm just getting started, man. I'm, I don't want to keep uh, going. <laughs> I know, I know you do, Heron. I know you do. Well, this should this should motivate you to generate additional questions and topics for next week. So, you know, the truth is, I forget about this thing the whole week until I get your uh, wondering whether or not we're you know we're ready to go or not. And then I go, oh yeah, oh boy. <laughs> Carry a piece of paper as I do and write on it occasionally. Oh, I, I, listen, I listen. I've been keeping my journal for thirty something years. I Certainly. always write. Yeah, no. Oh, and I do write uh, about this stuff, but uh, you know that's in there somewhere. And you know, yes. Anyway, well, you always have something to talk about, so I trust you. Very good, Heron. <laughs> very good. We'll trust in a week's time that I will have something to talk about I once can't again. Wait, I'm looking forward to it. You have a great evening, Heron. Okay, talk bye, to you next bye. week. Take care. <laughs>